0: Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, show number 144, where we interview Kirk Chisholm from Innovative Advisory Group and discuss alternative investments.
1: I think real estate is a great overlay for all of this conversation, even though we're trying to talk about alternatives. If you're buying real estate, it's illiquid. If you have to sell, you're going to get a crappy price. If you have to buy, you're going to get a crappy price. If you're patient, like in Around here in Massachusetts and most places in the country, it is a seller's market.
0: Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen. And with me, as always, is my smashing co-host, Scott Trench.
2: Wow, what another forceful introduction from Mindy. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else, and show you that by following the proven path, you can put yourself on the road to early financial freedom so you can get money out of the way and lead your best life.
2: That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big time investments in assets like real estate or alternative options like mineral rights, structural settlements, or 73 more, or start your own business, we'll help you build a position capable of launching yourself towards those dreams.
0: I'm super excited for today's show because we're talking to Kirk Chisholm. I've known him for several years, and he's an advisor, a financial advisor, who has a passion for alternative investments. I'm not talking about Bitcoin. Oh, wait, I am talking about Bitcoin and horses and mineral rights and all sorts of things that you didn't know you could invest in, or at least I didn't know you could invest in.
2: Yeah. I mean, he has a great framework and and wealth of experience uh, investing in these types of things. And I just learned a ton from Kirk today. So I'm excited to bring him on.
0: I am super excited to bring him on too. We don't get into the ins and outs of the individual investments so much as the framework and the mindset around what you need to be thinking of before you jump into these alternative investments. Everybody has that hot new investment that they heard from somebody, but you really need to know what you're doing in order to make these investments work.
2: Yep, absolutely. And, and I think that uh, this is a great introduction to this concept.
0: Interest rates are sky high in 2023. And buying a rental property means you could get stuck with an 8 9 or 10% mortgage rate. But what about a 2.99% rate with rent to retirement? Rent-to-retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller-financed 2.99% interest rate with an average cash flow of over $900 per month. Plus, they've got options where you can put as little as 5% down with no PMI. As the nation's leading turnkey investment company, Rent to Retirement helps investors build headache-free, high cash flow rental portfolios. And since their properties are fully turnkey, newly built or renovated, leased and managed, anyone can invest, even those who aren't into landlording. So what are you waiting for? This 2.99% rate deal won't last long. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777.
2: When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets,
0: Chisholm from Innovative Advisor Group. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. This is super exciting today because we are talking to you today about alternative investments. Everybody knows the stock market, everybody knows real estate, everybody knows bonds and my feelings on bonds. I don't like them. Um, but we are going to talk about alternative investments. When I was talking to you a couple of weeks ago, you told me you had this big list of alternative investments, and my thoughts like, oh, he's got four or five. You don't have four or five. You've got a ton of alternative investments. And some of these are really, really cool.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, I I love what I do, Mindy, because it's so much fun to find new alternative investments all the time. I put this list together, and there's more that aren't even on this list. Every every time a client calls me and says, hey, I want to do this, I'm like, that is the coolest thing I've ever heard. Well, could we get a quick intro how do you how would you describe what you do
2: and and how would you describe what an alternative
1: investment is for those listening so so I'm a wealth manager a investment advisor, a fee only investment advisor and um we got into this space because you know we were doing traditional investments and not that they're boring, but there were so many things outside of that that piqued my interest, real estate being a big one of them. And as I look at alternatives, and let me clarify, like answer your question with alternatives, the way that Wall Street defines alternatives is different from mine. The way they define it is it's something outside the box, which to them, their box is a mutual fund. Is it a stock? Is it a bond? Is it a mutual fund? If it's not, then it's an alternative they usually characterize it as like a hedge fund. And I think that's such a narrow scope for what alternatives really are. Based on their characterization, real estate would be an alternative, right? And I don't think too many people here would consider real estate an alternative. So the way I characterize alternatives is really, in some ways, it depends on the person. So if you only invest in CDs, a stock may be an alternative. But the way I characterize it, just to simplify it is, they're investments that are not securities. So they're outside of the stock market. Now, that could be horses or real estate or tax liens or a private company that's not listed on exchange. Anything except for stocks, bonds, and mutual funds really are what I would consider alternatives. And I think true alternatives, really, the point of considering them, and I just want to make this point, um, the point of considering real alternatives is not that they're different or they're better or they're riskier or you know you can put a lot of labels on them. The real point is if you're putting together a portfolio, let's say you're a real estate investor and you have 20 different properties. Well, you want 20 different properties because if one of them, something happens to it, you've got 19 left to help support the cash flow. Just like in a stock portfolio. You don't buy one stock. You might buy... A few mutual funds or an index fund, or you buy multiple to reduce your risk. Well, the problem when the stock market is everything has a very close correlation, right? It would be like having two properties that are next door neighbors to each other, and then you have a tornado that goes through the neighbor, the neighborhood. You know, you have these this diversification, this low correlation. Alternatives provide that because the stock market is not related to let's say, a rental property or a tax lien or a horse. There's very low correlation. So the point is, if one of them doesn't do well, it should not strongly affect the other one. So that's really why you want to consider alternatives um, in general.
0: Okay, so I'm looking through this list of alternative investments. And at the top, we start off with real estate. There's residential real estate and commercial real estate. And within the real estate space, I mean, just... The overall comment, real estate, I think most people think residential rental real estate, but there's, I mean, I think the first, I don't know, 10 or so are actual real estate investments that are diversified out from real estate. Some of these are pretty interesting, like storage units. I think storage units are a great investment. I read an article, I'm dating myself, in 1995, in the Chicago Tribune that said people have so much stuff, they don't wanna get rid of it, they can't just you know throw it away, they can't afford a bigger house, so they go and put it in a storage unit. Well, when you go to your storage unit, never. Like people will put stuff in there, the storage unit sets you up with an automatic credit card
2: If you're watching YouTube, you can see that Mindy does not have a storage unit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And also for reference, Mindy read that article when she was five years old.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, I read it when Scott was five. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so when you get a storage unit, they set you up on an automatic monthly credit card billing cycle. And who checks their credit cards? Who checks their credit card statements? Like literally, no people. Not uh, I shouldn't say that. That's not the correct word of the word. That's not the correct <laughs> use of the word. Literally,
2: everybody who listens to Bigger Pockets Money checks their credit card statements, yes, right? But okay. so many people don't.
0: So what's an extra hundred dollars on a thousand dollar credit card bill? Oh, whatever. Yeah, I guess I spent that much. I'll just pay it, and it's this vicious cycle, almost like a gym. A gym membership. If you don't go, they put you on this automatic cycle or automatic billing cycle so you don't forget to pay because you never would pay if you didn't go. Anyway, I love storage units for a lot of reasons. And if you don't like, if you're not convinced about storage units, call up the three storage units in your area and ask if they have any vacancy. Chances are the answer is going to be no, or maybe I have one coming up at the end of the month, or I just filled my last one.
2: Just to chime in here we have 75 units on this list. So for for example, we talk about real estate, we've got residential, commercial, industrial, tax liens, private mortgages, flipping, lease options, those types of things. We can't possibly get into all 75 in detail. Um, So this is uh, more of an uh, exploration of the concept of alternative investments and how to go about getting them. Kirk, what is your framework for approaching this overwhelming landscape of opportunity in the world of alternative investments? How would you introduce someone who's thinking about getting into this to the concept?
1: Well, that's a great question. Because I think that um, a lot of people see this, they have this shiny object syndrome. You know, They hear about something and they say, Ooh, that sounds sexy. Let's do that. Or, Oh, there's another shiny object over there. Let's do that. And it doesn't matter if it's alternatives or the stock market. I mean, this is what the stock market is. It's one big casino with bells and whistles and shiny lights and things moving around. And and people get hooked into that, that kind of shiny object syndrome. Alternatives is no different. They're not better or worse than any other investment. They're just different. So every single one of these has its own pros and cons. Uh, Mindy knows one of my favorite assets is tax liens. Uh, we just interviewed the tax lien lady uh, earlier this week, and we were talking about tax liens. It's it's one of those asset classes got great risk to reward. I love it. I understand it, but it's really complex. Like you need to really dig into the details uh, to really get good at it, and. If he just came and just said, all right, here's $10,000, I'm just going to buy a bunch of tax liens without knowing what you're doing. Well, you could lose your money. I mean, it's just like any other investment. So there are, there are risks and rewards to each of these. And what's really important is that people understand what the risks are of every investment and you know what the potential upside is. What typically happens with investors, and this is almost any investor, um, except for even the professionals get caught in this, is they get sucked into the, the outcome. They're outcome-based. They're looking at what's the upside here. And we take a very different tact because what I find is the outcome takes care of itself if you do your work properly. What is rarely ever looked at is the risk. What is the risk of this? You look at a guy like Bernie Madoff, that happened, Because everyone was looking at the upside and no one was looking at the risks. Now, there were a handful of people looking at the risks, but everyone else was just saying, oh, I'm happy getting my 10%. I don't care where it's coming from as long as I'm getting my 10%, which, you know, if you think about it, in hindsight, obviously, it makes sense to to focus on those things. But people don't. They just say, oh, all right, here's a prospectus. They're claiming I'm going to get 10 to 20%. All right, this looks good. I like 10 or 20%. Let's do that. But they don't know what they're investing in. Now, all of these alternatives, they're all different. So even though I put flipping houses, lease options, residential real estate, you know they all can kind of be combined. But they're very different strategies as well. If you're a buy and hold versus a flipper, those are different strategies. You may not be an expert at both. You might be really good at finding rental properties and you might do a really bad job at flipping properties. So it's, it's not only the asset, but it's also the process and the structure of what you're doing. So when we're looking at alternatives, there's a few things to consider. One is, are you an expert in this area? And this applies to any asset. Is this you know what you know? Or did you just read about it in some article? If it's what you're truly an expert at, that's really the first step. I mean, Peter Lynch said it best, invest in what you know. So if you're an expert in real estate and you're investing in tech companies, maybe you should reconsider your approach, right? Invest in what you know. That's the first step. And if you don't know, find somebody or great resources you can learn. That's really, you know, rule number one is you have to understand what you're doing. The next thing to do is to look at, at the risks involved, right? So are these risks appropriate for you? And if you don't understand the risks, then you probably shouldn't be investing in it. The way we look at risk management is identify all the risks, mitigate as many as possible, and just being comfortable with what's left over because you're never going to get rid of all of them, right? I mean, you can buy insurance to make sure your house doesn't burn down. Okay, great. It's not no risk. The insurance company might decide not to pay you. They might go out of business. I mean, the risks are infinitesimally small but they still exist. And you just need to be comfortable with that, right? And I think most people are that buy fire insurance, they're comfortable with the fact that it is possible that they couldn't get paid back. Unlikely, but possible. And I think that's really the structure that most people have to consider when they're looking at investments. Um, there's another thing too, which is something we talk about a lot, which is understanding your own investor psychology. Now, this has caused more problems for investors than any other psychological Part of investing that I've ever seen is somebody reads Warren Buffett's, you know, he doesn't have a book, but, you know, somebody is writing about Warren Buffett and the best way to invest, and they're trying to follow Warren Buffett. Oh, that's great. He's a really smart guy. Let's do that. Yet it may not line up with their investor psychology. So if you're a real estate investor, maybe there's a part of that that really works well for you. But if you tried to be a day trader and day trade penny stocks, that might not work for you. Now, I have friends who do that. They they day trade for a living and they do it well. They don't try to invest in real estate. It's a very different investor psychology. Um, you really have to understand your own investor psychology because two people are not necessarily the same. I know what I'm weak at and I know what I'm strong at. And if I have a weak area, I try to support that with other things to make sure that, you know, I'm not uh, getting caught up in that weakness. So you really need to understand yourself. That's a really important part of this. And you can't just read a book and assume you understand. You have to really kind of understand how you react in different situations.
2: So let's try Let's try to kind of figure out a way to get in the minds of someone who might be listening to the show and, and think, hey, I'm a aspiring investor. And I look at the stock market and, you know, we've, we've talked about index fund investing and why we like that approach as opposed to day trading here on The Money Show because of the, you know, and one way to put it would be the reasonable efficiency of the market and the difficulty and, and amount of time it will take to invest to exploit the inefficiencies that maybe your day trader friends are investing and are, and are, are realizing, Right. So, and I'm not an expert in any of these categories. I'm not an expert in real estate. I'm not an expert in oil and gas LPs. I'm not an expert in franchises. I'm not an expert in diamonds. You know, it can go on, but I'm willing and eager to begin investing time into a learning about one of these categories. How do I approach that? Do I look for one that's particularly inefficient? Do I look for one that I just like the most? How do I begin diving into these if I'm an aspiring investor?
1: Yeah. Well, I would say first off, it doesn't really matter what you invest in. You have to think about what's your, what's your ideal outcome. So it doesn't matter if you're investing in real estate or horses. What's your outcome? Is, are you looking for income? Are you looking for 10% a year? Are you looking for tax write-offs? Like All of those things are really important to consider um, as a start, right? So um, you need to understand that to begin with. Because if you're looking for income and you're investing in horses, it's probably not a good, good idea, right? So understanding your ideal outcome is, is a good start. The other thing I'll point out is you don't have to invest in everything. You don't. We see stuff all the time. And to me, it's just part of the joy that I have in this profession is learning about new and really cool investments. Like motion picture, film, tax credits. Who's heard of that? It is one of the coolest things I've heard about and it's next to impossible to get into because it's like an old boys network and there's you know in any given city there's like two or three people that actually you can you can that actually buy them and no one else is really allowed to participate. So, you know, I happen to have a client who is in that space, which is why I know about it. But the point is is not every one of these is gonna be applicable. There may not be an opportunity. So I would say the way the way we look at things, which everyone has their own perspective, the way we look at things is we start top-down. So we look at things from a global perspective, like where are the trends happening? Because I want to be involved in a trend, right? So if the trend is SAS companies or SAAS, software as a service companies, if that's a trend, then I want to look for something in that trend, right? If... Farmland is not trending, meaning it's not doing well and it hasn't been for quite some time, number of years. Then I probably don't want to invest in farmland. Now, maybe you do, maybe there's reasons to do that. But the point is, you need to look at it from a big picture perspective. You could pick the best farm possible, but if all farms are losing money, then what's the point of investing in farmland, right? You're just your opportunity set is small. So you have to understand where the money flows are going, where the trends are going. I mean, given what's going on with COVID, right? All of these cloud-based services are doing well. Amazon's doing well. All these these companies that are really, that have been trending in the right direction, it just got accelerated. So you want to understand where the trends are, just like with real estate, right? You don't, you know, if people are moving out of your city, you probably don't want to invest in that city. You want to invest in a city where people are moving to, so, looking at the big picture is a good start. Understanding where the opportunities are, and then just finding something that you really enjoy learning about. Because if it's painful, you're going to be spending a lot of time in this. I mean, if you're investing in real estate, you know, if you've never done it before, you're not going to just pick up a book, read five pages, and say I know everything, right? You're you're going to have to dig in. You're going to probably want to talk to other people, other real estate investors, find out what's working, what isn't working. Like, this is, you have to have a bit of a passion for it to really do well at something. So, I'd say, you know, having an understanding. And like I said, this big list is really just to start people's, you know, gears working in their brain. There's a ton of stuff in here I would never invest in. It just, I wouldn't. (laughs) You know, like wine. I'm not going to invest in wine. I don't know the first <laughs> thing about it. I like drinking it, but I don't know if I could tell you the difference between a thousand dollar and a hundred dollar bottle of wine. I just, you know, for me, it's probably not a good idea. Um, artwork, things like that. I mean, there's a lot of things. Payday loans. I actually know enough about that to not do it. But you know, there's there's lots of assets on here that you can. You can just start digging in just saying, hey, I know a little bit about that. That to me seems interesting and just start doing some research. I mean, the nice part about the internet is you can find almost anything out there. Some are harder to find, but there's at least some basic information that you can do some digging, like motion picture film tax credits. There's not much out there. You can find enough to kind of get the cursory You know overview, but once you kind of learn enough to say, "All right, that's that's not going to work," because I don't have any connections. So you move on, you find something else. I'll give you an example. Uh, We just interviewed a guy on oil and gas investing, and it was a really interesting perspective. I know enough to be dangerous, but I'm not an expert. You know, this guy is a driller; he drills wells. You know, you know, tons of wells every year. He knows it inside and out. So it was an interesting conversation. I'm not going to just pick up and start doing that because I know how much he knows and how much I don't know. And that's a reason that I'm just saying, you know, I'm not passionate enough about that to really put the time in to get that good. So I think those are kind of some ways that I would start to look at this is just start to narrow down and just start eliminating things off the list. That's another way to do it.
2: When we talk about real estate investing, a framework I have in mind for thinking about it is the barrier to entry is not in dollars but in time and that time investment is probably in the order of 250 to 500 hours of self-education that many investors and it's a sliding scale some people feel comfortable for that some people need to put in much more time than that investing their education learning listening meeting people studying the market whatever in order to have a reasonable risk adjusted return of entering into a quality residential real estate project or flip or whatever it is. Would you say, do you kind of agree with that framework generally for many of these asset classes? And would you say that there's any that you think have lower barriers to entry or higher barriers to entry
1: relative to other items in, in this list? Yeah, the barrier to entry is actually a good point. So there's the time barrier, there's the money barrier, right? I mean, if, if you have $1,000 investing in real estate might be a bit of a challenge for you and i'm assuming we're doing a, a buy and rent out kind of a scenario. Now, there are ways to do it, but you're you're limited in your with your resources and what you can do. Whereas you could invest in tax liens, you know, you could buy 10 $1, $100 tax liens and you could do that. So i think the money part is a big part of it. The time part of it's also big cuz most of us have full-time jobs and if you do, you may not have all the time in the world to do this sort of thing. If you want to invest in, uh, um, in storage, you know, self-storage, which I concur with Mindy, great investment. Uh, I know around here, I mean, we have a unit and I'm afraid to give it up because if we do, we won't get it back. <laughs> like it's There's just nothing available around here and, and they're not making m- much more of it. So, you know, I think just looking at things that seem feasible. So I can just go down the list. Airspace rights. All right, that's probably not on my not on my list. That's something that would, you know, in New York, maybe in a city like New York where your, your airspace rights is really important. Mineral rights, not so important here. Maybe more in Texas or some of the oil and gas areas. And fishing Colorado. Rights. Yeah, Colorado. Yeah. I mean fishing rights. I mean, you can go down the list and say, all right, what's what's something I can even possibly do? Because I, I just, you know, horses. Not not on my list. Livestock, I don't own a farm. So you can go to, <laughs> get on the list and start eliminating some of these and just kind of look at things that you may have maybe some insight into or some background or know some people who know something. Um, you know, I mean, there's things like structured settlements are kind of this weird thing. I looked into that 10 years ago and what I realized is I need to have an attorney on staff because ninety percent of this is about making sure that your um, your rights to the settlement are solid, and it's really a court process. And I decided it's just the numbers just aren't there to make it worthwhile to do that, because I got to hire attorney full time. We're not doing that kind of volume. Some companies are doing nothing but that, and and it works for them. So. You know, you need to understand what's required to make it work, and you can just start. You can eliminate a lot of these off the list just based on that.
0: I think that's really important that you say that. You know, pick something that you have a passion about, and you really look into that. Uh, with the attorney thing, I'm not an attorney. I think structured settlements sound really cool. But if I have to hire an attorney to do that for me, maybe that's not my best choice. However, somebody listening to this might be an attorney. That might be something that they think, hey, I love, what is this, contract law? I love contract law. Let me jump into this with both feet. Like that could be a really great um, investment for them. My husband is in love with Tesla and not just now. He's been in love with Tesla for a long time. It's, It's, you know, he thinks it's overvalued now and whatever, and he's been passionately, consuming every bit of information and then spitting it back at me about the company and their building plans. And, oh, like last night he was telling me how they built a factory in China in nine months, but the one that they're building in Texas, because they did all this work in front, they're going to build it in four months. I'm like, wait a second, we have way stronger building codes than China does. How do you build a an entire factory in texas in four months and frankly i don't really care about the answer because that's not something that revs my engine scott i did a pun i did a joke yay (laughs) (laughs) but there's you know there's a guy who's got a podcast called tesla daily he worked at kohl's like the the department store but was fascinated about tesla And now he's got this top podcast and knows everything there is to know about it because it consumed him. He would have done the research anyway, even if he never got the podcast and even if like nothing ever happened with it, he just loves it. So if you're going to be, you know, like real estate, Scott says he's not an expert on real estate. I don't know why you say that, Scott. I think I'm an expert on everything, but real estate specifically. And I love doing the research. I love doing the work. It's like, it's not work. What is that phrase? If you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. I work every day and it's like no big deal at all. I can't wait to go to work. So I think you do have to have a passion about it, but there's, I mean, you've got a list right now that has all these things in it. I can also cross off a bunch of stuff off that list. Nope, nope, nope. Not interested in that. But some of these things are super, super cool. And you've mentioned risk a couple of times. When I think risk, I think I could lose all of my money and go to zero. Are there any investments on this list or just in general that have a risk of losing more than you initially invested?
1: I would say potentially a lot of them, right? I mean, you think about real estate. What if you, um, what if you buy a property and you don't buy it pro- you don't buy it properly and now you have to sue somebody? And you come out with nothing and then you have to put legal fees on top of that. I mean, you know, if you think about a lot of these, I mean, that's potentially possible. Now, I think to your question, if I am I want to answer it in a different way, if you look at stocks, let's say you buy $100,000 worth of stocks and then the stock market or the stocks go to zero, you lose all your money, but you're never going to lose more. If you invest in futures, right, futures involve leverage. And leverage is effectively a way where you can lose more than your initial investment. So for futures or Forex, another example, you put down 10000 you can buy $100,000 worth of some commodity. If you're wrong and it goes against you by 10% then or more than 10%, then you have to put up more than 10000 to cover your position. Real estate's the same way. Buy a property for $100,000, put down $10,000 and the property value goes down by 30%, now you owe $20,000 that you didn't put up. That's more than you originally invested. So I think the key is, if we're eliminating the legal part of this or any sort of other considerations, we are just looking at the investment itself, leverage is the key factor of where you're going to lose more, potentially lose more than what you put up.
3: Okay, that's good to know. This show is sponsored by Airbnb.
0: And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it easy to manage your money like a pro. Add a partner or family member to your account for no extra cost. So combined finances become a breeze. Customize your budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions, and more. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com pockets. That's monarchmone dot com slash pockets for your extended 30-day free trial. Listen up, business owners. Here's some quick math. Fewer costs equals more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems, because now you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Don't let rising costs sink your business's growth. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks, Head to netsuite.com slash BPMoney. That's netsuite.com slash BPMoney. NetSweet.com slash BP Money. What if I told you that I, Mindy Jensen, the queen of budgeting, the personal finance fanatic, You can see all your subscriptions in one place and cancel money-sucking subscriptions with a tap. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. That's rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney.
2: When, when we talk about some of these investments and getting into them from a, a position, maybe where I'm not already an accredited investor, right? So, I mean, that's, that's gotta be another one of these. Some of these investments are only available or are much more available to accredited investors, even without the financial minimums that you have to put into them just because of SEC regulations. Do you have any kind of frameworks for approaching that problem or or how how folks can get around that or work through that?
1: Yeah, so the accredited investor thing is it's a sore spot for me because I think it's it's kind of obnoxious to say people with certain amount of money are the only ones that can invest in this certain type of investment. That has actually lightened up a lot in the last 10 years. It's getting better. It's still an issue, but it's getting better. It's obviously there to protect investors, but it's in some ways it's also there to protect the high net worth people from competing with everybody else. So if you're investing in real estate and you're investing in a real estate fund and that fund requires you to be a credit investor, who's to say you couldn't just buy the property yourself? Right? Like there's no there's nothing to say that you have to be accredited to buy a piece of real estate. It's really more of the structured side and the security side that limit you. So for us, you know, we invest in alternatives all the time. This almost never comes into the picture for us, the accredited investor thing. Obviously, we have to make sure that it's suitable for the client. But if you're, you know, if you're an expert in horses, who's, who's going to come here and say you shouldn't be investing in horses because you're not accredited? I mean, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. So that's not how they really look at things when the the regulators, when they look at it. You really have to just, if you're relying on other people or funds, then you can get caught up in that. But if you're investing directly, very infrequently, will that actually even come into play? Got it.
2: What about some of these investments? I think- People call investments, but don't really know what they're doing and are more just speculating uh, groundlessly. Now, like for, let's take artwork, <laughs> for example. Like artwork, art for, there's, there's a few people I know who invest in art and make, make money in it. But I think many people buy art, maybe not knowing what they're doing and thinking that it's an investment. Do you, do you have some of the uh, the traps that you think people fall into? Like another one, another good one is uh, diamonds or diamond rings. One, one of my buddies, I, I think, is going to buy a diamond ring and, oh, it's a great deal. It's going to be a good investment. It's like, dude, that's a capital gain that you'll never realize
1: and it's never, <laughs> it's not really an investment. Uh, Zero people uh,
0: buy <laughs> used diamond rings.
1: Yeah. Here's another one, Scott. Have you ever met anyone who didn't get a good deal on a diamond ring? You know, I, I have, I have
2: not met anyone, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think, I think I'll be out there. I bought a diamond ring and it was a synthetic diamond and I got it because there's a whole bunch of good reasons for, for that at lower price, uh, really good quality. No one's dying to mine the diamond, uh, all that kind of good stuff. And I know that it's, it's value dropped right after I bought it. So I think I'm, I'll be that guy who didn't get a great deal on the diamond ring, but I got a, I got a great fiance. I'm going to marry later this year. So, Congratulations. That's all that matters, right? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, anyway, yeah. Stay- yeah, yeah, yes, I get your point, though. Sorry for throwing you off there. With
1: yeah, no, it's it's interesting because I remember reading about diamonds maybe 10, 10, 12 years ago, and there was a great article. I forget where it was, but it was one of the magazine, one of the magazines. But it was this long article about how diamonds actually work, how the monopoly works, how they, you know, restrict pricing. You know, the different types of diamonds. Like it was really thorough. And I read it, and I came away with, all right. So diamonds, any diamond you buy is worthless if unless you're mining them, because they're effectively creating a market which shouldn't exist, except for the fact that they have a monopoly that is sustained because they're all, you know, they're all colluding. Effectively, it's not really a monopoly, but it, it more or less is. So I could very easily go and mine a bunch of diamonds and come out and just just start selling them at a big discount. And there's just this monopoly that exists and that's the reason why they're high priced. And I get it, you know, it's just part of, it's probably shouldn't be allowed, but it is. And, um, and I think you just need to understand what the quote unquote value is. And this is actually something, uh, I'll bring it up because this is something that people rarely think about. When we look to buy an investment, we go in with the exit in mind. So we know why we're buying it, we know when we're going to sell it and why, right? So if you buy Tesla and it's $100 and your exit's $200 and it goes to $250, you probably should sell it. You've waited too long. Like you need to adhere to your strategy. There's nothing wrong with taking more profits, but what a lot of people do is they come out, they buy a stock, it goes up whatever, 100%, and it hits their target. And they just say, you know what? I think it's going to keep going higher. Well let me spoil it for you you can't predict the future no one can so you have no idea what it's going to do and the bottom could drop out tomorrow i'm (laughs) actually the client who worked at uber and he wanted a certain price for the stock and i said you know it hit that price right after it went public and i said you need to sell it he's like i don't know i think it's gonna go a little higher i said sell the stock we talked about this we had a long conversation we agreed this is a good price and at, the, and at the moment, he said, I don't want to sell it. So he held on. He said, you know, I got to run. Let's talk about it tomorrow. The stock dropped like 10% the next day. And, you know, we talked and I said, that's what you missed. You missed your opportunity. Now, fortunately, it came back and it came back again. We had the same conversation. Oh, you know, I think I should hold. I'm like, just sell the stock. <laughs> and fortunately, he did. And then, the, and then we had COVID hit and then the stock dropped like a stone. The point being is you don't know the future. You have to put together a plan and you have to stick with it. And you can't go back and say, oh, I could I lost out on money I could have made. Yeah, I know. And I could have gone to the casino and I could have hit snake eyes and made tons of money. But I didn't do that. And if I didn't bet on this, I, this would have happened. You can't go back in history and say, you know, woulda, shoulda, coulda. You just need to have a plan and stick with it. And I think I saw Mindy celebrating when I said you need to have an exit strategy in mind. Like that's really important. That's what we do. Any investment we have, there's an exit strategy. And if you don't know, then you shouldn't be investing. So so let me I'll I'll I'll
2: use some time selfishly here for me. So my <laughs> exit strategy when I invest is I, I leave my money in that investment or I intend to leave that in that investment basically in perpetuity. Right. Like so for example, I invest in a stock market index fund and I never have an exit, right? I, I plan to build wealth 30, 50 years plus. Until I, you know, potentially begin to modify my portfolio to begin withdrawing on it, right? But that's a plan. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's so that's, that's an indefinite investment horizon, right? And so the requirements with that philosophy for me are sustained cash flow, or at least cash, at least cash generation that does not require me to put more capital into my investments on a regular basis to sustain them, and the maximum possible long-term appreciation of that asset right over a long period of time right and so for that because of that philosophy i invest in stock market index funds cuz i don't have to touch them and they're completely passive and i think i'm going to get a reasonable shot at at least average long term returns and then real estate where i le- leverage appropriately capitalize appropriately so that i don't believe i'll ever have to commit incremental capital into my investments and then they can self generate and then i just re-leverage or sustain or you know sustain my 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 rate of return long term if you share my philosophy or if if that philosophy is you know shared by anybody listening what would you what what were some asset classes in this list of alternative investments that might satisfy those requirements for indefinite long-term returns no continued capital commitments
1: yeah and actually let me let me go a little bit off the reservation here and answer this a little bit differently because i think this is a great point that uh, a lot of people miss so having that plan even if it's Perpetuity. I mean, you look at trust funds or endowments like college endowments, those have perpetuity as their timeline. But even with that, there has to be some parameters of what if this happened, would you still sell? Right? So let's say you're investing in gold, right? And gold just goes up to 10,000 tomorrow. Well, you have to reassess and say, is that too expensive? Right? Maybe it is. I would say it's too expensive. Um, you know, I, I would say the price I would look at for gold would be much lower. So if things get too overinflated, like in 1999, you might have said, you know what? I think things are a little bit crazy. Maybe I should reconsider what I'm doing. Because part of this is actually, is, is, and this is something that I do a lot with investing, is I wake up and I look at my investments and say, would I buy this today? And if the answer is no, then I sell it. And I do that as a process because it helps me rethink my positioning all the time. Now, I don't do this every day, but this is kind of one of those, at least quarterly, I look at things and I say, why is that in there? Is that's in there because it's just been there and it's not doing anything. So I reassess the position because I think what happens to a lot of people is they do something and they forget why they did it. And then they're too lazy to actually fix it. And what that can happen is, and it's kind of like dating somebody, right? You, you get comfortable with it. It's like, hey, I'm dating this person. I'm a little too lazy to dump them, but, you know, it's, 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 it's not terrible, but it's not great. So I'm just going to stick it out, right? Like, that's not really a, a secret to success, right? You need to reassess and, and make make a good decision with where you are. So I want to start with that because I think that's really important. Um, I also want to point out, because you, you made a, a subtle point, which I think is really important. You mentioned that you're, you're indexing and you're more of a perpetuity or very, very long-term time horizon. That's great. One of the things that's really important is you need to understand what your strategy is and what the instructions are. And this is where a lot of people get into trouble. So if you're an indexer, you're a buy and hold indexer, you know, modern portfolio theory, all the things that they teach you about in school and pretty much everywhere, then the, you need to understand the rule book. The rule book is you buy and hold through thick and thin. That, you just have to do that. The market goes down 50%, buy and hold because you cannot predict the future. That is really important to understand. So when the market goes down a lot, people say, oh, I got to get out, this is too painful. If you know what the instruction manual says and you're going with a strategy, you need to stick with that strategy. Yes, yes, Mindy.
0: Yes, yes, yes.
1: <laughs> you cannot change midstream just because that you know, something happened that you didn't like. You need to know going in, hey, this could happen. This asset could drop 50%. If it does, what am I going to do? Am I going to stick it out? And if you can't stick it out, then you might want to reconsider what you're doing. Now, the way I look at it is, from my perspective, any sort of investing is risk management first. That's what we do for everything. Risk management first. You know, Can we manage the risk on this? So for the stock market, we don't look at a buy and hold forever approach. Because I think that if you know, you know if you're driving down the road and you see a boulder in the road, you don't just hit it fly from the car, get back into your car and keep driving, you drive around the boulder. So our strategy is a little bit more tactical. And we look at things, it's not day trading, but we're looking at managing risk. We understand that we're not going to outperform the index in any given year, but we know that we're not going to lose 30, 50% when the market goes down. So our strategy is very different. And I understand what's where it's strong and where it's weak, and I have to abide by the rules that I've set out. And if I do then it works out well. If I start deciding to go off, you know, off script for what we're doing, that's where I can get myself into trouble. And this applies to any investment, whether it's stocks or real estate, you know, you have to understand the instruction manual and you have to follow it because, you know, for me to do a buy and hold would totally de- derail what we're trying to do. So that it's really important point to understand that if you don't understand the instruction manual, you're probably going to fail at it.
0: Okay, I want to answer this based on what I know about Scott. I'm looking at this list of all these alternative investments. Um, Scott, you know that I'm the president of your fan club, but you should never, ever, ever buy artwork as an investment. That doesn't make you a bad person, but that makes you really bad. I have bad. great taste. No, you don't. You have great taste in fiancés, and you're very smart, but you (laughs) cannot pick artwork. But on the other hand, what did you major in in college? Business and economics and finance and like 15 majors, right? Economics
2: and history, corporate strategy, finance. Okay,
0: so number 51, private equity. Number 52, venture capital. Um, what is private placement? I don't know what that is. Startup angel investing. Those kinds of things play to your strengths because you can look at their business plan and read it and it makes sense to you, or it doesn't make sense to you and you're like, never mind, I'm not going to invest in this. But those play to your strengths. Whereas artwork, maybe not so much. And wine, I don't know. Do you drink wine? Yeah. Okay. Do you know anything about it?
2: I, I'm I'm as about as happy at the end of a ten dollar bottle as at the end of a fifty dollar bottle of wine. So exactly. I don't know if wine's we're, a good I one think for we're me. I'm not
0: investing in <laughs> wine. Um, but there are things on here that play to your strengths, just like the structured settlements play to the attorney who loves contract laws strengths. So I think that there are a lot of ways to invest. Now that isn't a long term necessarily, the venture capital. Do you have any statistics, Kirk, on how much like how many times you have to invest in a in a startup before you hit a good one? Like there's people that give money to everybody and then like they hit one and it's such a big payout that it makes all the other dumb ones worthwhile, but.
1: Yeah, I don't have the exact statistics, but I can generally tell you what they are. So, you know, successful venture capitalists, I'm not talking about the three of us who don't do that for a living. I'm talking about people who do it for a living or are good at it. Generally, the metrics are, you're going to have about three... Three to four that are zeros. They're just going to go to zero. They'll be bankrupt. Uh, You have one to two grand slam home runs. If you have one, that's sufficient. But, you know, one to two grand slam home runs. You probably get another three or so that are neutral, meaning they're not going to go anywhere. And then you get a few singles and doubles. So really, and I actually just interviewed a guy last week on this, so it's a little bit top of mind. But it, it's really a great asset class if you enjoy helping... Because comp- part of this is like angel investing. Part of this is actually the giving back part. If you're a successful entrepreneur and you can help a startup company, you can make money, but you can also live vicariously through them. That's, that's why a lot of them do that. The venture capital companies or vulture capitalists, some people call them, a lot of them invest in technology because there's a huge amount of potential for like... a you know, 10x, 100x, 1000x return on their investment. And for them, they can have a bunch of zeros and one grand slam home run is going to make them on average 20 to 30% a year. So a lot of them are looking for that 20 to 30% as their outcome based on the statistics of what's going to be a success and a failure. But what's important to take away from this is they're going in assuming there's going to be failures. They know it. They can't, predict all of the best outcomes. I mean, unless you're like Peter Thiel and all the best people come to you and you're just cherry picking the best ideas, but even he makes mistakes. So you don't know the future. So all you can really do is do your best and play the odds. If you look at distressed debt, uh, it's another one or day trading. Day trading is a perfect example. If you're a day trader, it's all about statistics. If you look at, so I'll give you an example let's say you're a day trader and I tell you that I have a 40% success rate. Do you think I'm making money or losing money? Depends on which, how big you bet on the, the winners and how much <laughs> little you, you lose on the, the losers, right? Partially correct. Yeah. There's another part of it though. What's the other part? The other part is it's how much you make when you're winning and how much you lose when you're losing. So for instance, let's say you had a 10% success rate or 20% success rate, let's say, for example, right? So 20% of the time, you're right. But when you're wrong, you lose 5%. When you're right, you make 100%. You're going to make money. You're going to be successful. I'm doing the math in my head, so I might be wrong. But you get the gist of it. It's not necessarily about how many are winners and how many are losers. It's how much you make when you win and it's how much you lose when you're wrong. And that's a really important consideration because there's some people who are like 90% success rate, but their success, their upside is so small that they're really not making a ton of money. They're just they're grinding it out uh, for a living. So I think it's important to understand in numbers. It's not just winners and losers. So it sounds like if you're a poker player, that's a good one for
2: you because you're understanding the odds of the the pot size and and how big your bet is, your pot odds, those, all those different types of things. Right? It's a similar type of, of analysis to day
1: trading in some ways. Yeah, probabilities, bets. Yeah, I think that's a perfect, perfect comparison.
2: You know, w- look, I, I'm what I'm trying to. What, what I guess what we're trying to communicate overall to people listening is there's a wide, wide variety of potential investments out there that depend on your skill set, risk tolerance, interests, uh, uh, you know, the way your brain works, and those types of things. And so we can't possibly cover every a strategy that works for every investor. But I will, you know, I I do think it might be helpful to just give everybody my framework and how I'm thinking through this list and walking through that for me, right? Like, like we already talked about my long term approach to those types of things and my skill set. My skill set is in real estate investing and operating small businesses and private equity in the private equity space or 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 smaller, right? And so items that work for me would be like small businesses that you could buy and buy and sell um, with, with SBA loans. Venture capital, private equity, or angel investing will be things that I, I'm sure I will become interested in in future years, right? In either investing in the funds or individual companies in 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 some capacity alongside those folks, right? Again, I, we had that we talked about the small business model and the amount massive amount of inefficiency and the number of small businesses being sold by boomers recently. I think there's a lot of inefficiency in that market that a, a hustler could go and figure out how to realize and a lot of non-financial things that come into play, like a business owner who's selling a company and maybe has a few key employees that they want to retain who are like family to them. And they're not going to be as concerned about price. They're going to be more concerned about keeping their legacy going, the name on the business, those types of things, those types of areas. So those are some of the ways that I think about it. And those all fit in my framework of, I am willing to invest forever in those assets never want to commit more capital or be forced to commit more capital in those assets, but will sell whenever the the appropriate time comes for those those investments to to realize their gains or whatever. Anyways, I know I'm I'm being selfish and hogging some of my philosophy, but I, I feel like that's help maybe helpful for some in thinking through how I would make condense this list of like seventy-five different things into ones that might appeal to me based on well, my
1: background. It's not just the assets too. I mean, you're, you're making some great points. It's not just the assets as well. It's also the way you invest in them. So let's say, for an example, let's say angel investing. You could you could find a company and give them money for equity. You could, you could loan them money for debt. You could put money into a fund and invest in a bunch of companies. You could do, there's a thing, I'm not sure if I have it on this list, called the search fund, which is an interesting concept, which is not really talked about much, but it's basically there's an attorney in Boston. What he does is he, he, he goes and finds businesses and businesses that potentially want to sell. He'll acquire the business and he'll put in some recent Harvard MBA grad or whatever uh, running the company and, you know, he'll buy it for a good price and then he'll put that person in and he'll make good cash flow. It's not a huge space. But it's something that I find interesting because you're you're able to buy a, a cash-flowing business. You don't want to do it yourself. I mean, I'm gonna if I want to dry, buy a dry cleaning business, I don't want to do that. They're great businesses from what I hear, but that's not what I want to do. So you got to find somebody to run it and you have to incentivize them. I mean, I have a client who buys car washes, buys a bunch of car washes, huge cash-flowing businesses, great business. I don't know that I want to do that, but he does it. He does it well, makes great money. Um, So, you know, I would probably say, hey, I've got a bunch of money. I want to buy a car wash. Can you help me? You know, it's just finding creative ways to get into the space. It doesn't have to be you're doing it all. You could find other ways to do it too. So I I think it's, it's really important to not only understand the opportunity, but how you're going to do it and how you're going to manage the risk. Because I love real estate. I don't want to be a landlord. So I need to find another way to manage the risk of the property management. And so I would have to either find somebody, invest in a fund, invest in a REIT or whatever it might be, but I would find an alternative approach to do that. So it's just, it's you have to look at things multiple different ways.
2: Do you have any clients or do you find any stories of people who are you know relatively successful at this within a, a year or two, starting with no more than maybe fifty to a hundred thousand dollars in net worth, or is this really a game that you should be considering? You know, after you're rounding out five hundred thousand in net in an investable net worth or a million, is there any like general frameworks you'd have for the entry point or where that where leveraging your time is effective relative to the amount of dollars you have to invest or those types of things?
1: I think it depends on the investment. I mean, if you're thinking about investing in a company and you have five thousand dollars then you might need to find other investors. That might not be enough. So the amount of money is really important in terms of what your possibilities are. I mean, if you're investing in tax liens, you could do that very easily buying a bunch of $100 tax liens. So low risk, low entry point. But if you're buying real estate in Massachusetts, let's say it's gonna be really hard to invest with $10,000. You know, Property prices are really expensive here. So the amount that you're getting in is a really important part of that. And that's why you need to understand what the other alternatives are to invest in that asset if it doesn't meet your criteria. But I will say that if you're looking to get started in this, it's really important to have, and I'm sure you guys talk about this on the show all the time, but if you're investing in real estate... You need to have an emergency fund for that property. You need to have money saved up. You can't just put 100% of your money into the property and assume, oh, great, I own this property, and then you need a new roof. And now what do I do, right? It's, It's not really much different from investing in private company stock. You invest in the stock, and then you need the cash tomorrow to buy a new car. Well, you can't. You invest in that company, you can't sell. That is tied up. That is illiquid assets. You can't do a darn thing with it. You don't run the company; someone else does. You're stuck, so you need to understand going in that hey, this is money I'm pretty much going to light on fire. I mean, that's how I look at it with any investment. Well, it you sounds know. like you have
2: a, a lot of experience around this. And we ask this question of a lot of investors who come on our podcast. But how? how what, what would you say the cash on hand of these investors is in terms of cash they reserve for lifestyle expenses? You know, year a year of spending, two years, whatever it is. How would you say the is there a framework that you see consistently applied across your client base in terms of how much liquidity or access to cash they have if they're investing in more of the illiquid
1: assets in this list so it tends to be the the illiquid assets tend to be the higher net worth people just because of the illiquidity because you know if you don't if you have 10,000 in savings and you put it all into some illiquid asset and then you need it you're kind of uh you're kind of in trouble, whereas you know high net worth investors they got an extra million they they don't need to liquidate five million dollars tomorrow for no apparent reason like there's a lot more well thought out planning done with higher net worth people because they know that in no scenario would they ever need two million dollars if they're worth five million There's just no scenario that it's going to be such an emergency they need to liquidate that, so they can afford in that scenario to put into illiquid assets. Now I'm not saying everybody should look at it that way because you know, if you, if you don't have $5 million, let's say you only have 100,000 as your net worth and you wanted to start buying real estate, there's nothing wrong with that. You just need to understand what your potential needs would be. And this is a good question, but it's really hard to answer. I have clients who have one month worth of an emergency fund, which I think is way too low. I have clients who have 12 months. I think three to six months is probably a lot more normal to have in terms of an emergency fund. But a lot of this also depends on your um, cash flow. Are you getting a pension like or social security? That's more or less guaranteed income. And I say guaranteed in air quotes because who the heck knows what's going to happen with social security. But let's just say for the moment you're relying on social security. You're more or less guaranteed to get paid that, Okay. Now, if you have a job at a, you know, at a company where you're an employee, you could get laid off tomorrow. You don't have a lot of security with that income. If you run your own business, you might have a pretty strong, let's say real estate, you might have a pretty strong cash flow. But whoever thought COVID would have happened, and now you got a bunch of tenants you can't evict and they're not paying rent, and now you're in trouble. So you need to really kind of find a comfort zone for you that you can look at a, I I call it thinking about the worst case scenario. Like what's the worst thing that could happen? And if you're comfortable with the worst thing that could happen happening, then I think you're, you're pretty in good shape. It doesn't mean you have to be that conservative because there's a lot of people who... I don't know, oil and gas investors or a lot of real estate developers, they leverage themselves up to the hilt. Then a bad economy happens, they go bankrupt, and then they do it all over again. It's a very common theme. And they make tons of money when things are good, and they never know when to shut it off. They never know when to stop. So you're kind of protected by good trends. But as soon as bad times hit, that's where people get into trouble. And So you need to, if you want to be really smart about it and managing your risk, you really need to think about what's the worst thing that could happen. What if half my properties start paying me rent? Am I okay for six months? What would I do, right? And thinking through those scenarios, maybe you need to get a home equity line that you never tap just in case. Maybe you need to save up more money. I mean, Mindy was on our show recently and we talked about this, like having that emergency fund, having, what did you say, six months or 18? It was a big amount.
0: I said six months at the minimum simply because COVID is our, I hate this phrase, our new normal, but it's our new normal. And if I have a tenant who can't pay rent, I have to pay that rent. I have to pay the utilities if it's, you know, or shut them off. I have to do all the things. And until I get somebody in with a, eviction moratorium, that could be a really long time. What's the eviction moratorium now? I think it's till the end of the year. This is uh, being recorded in the middle of September in 2020. And I think the moratorium goes through the end of December. Is it going to go farther? It might. I mean, what do you do? It's such an unprecedented thing. You can't just kick everybody out. You have to make sure you can cover your interest in that property. And six months is the minimum that I would suggest you have.
1: Yeah. And I think we've all kind of experienced the COVID thing, which has been an extreme end of what could happen in the worst case. And you don't even live in Massachusetts, Mindy. Massachusetts, that's like six months is the minimum it takes to evict somebody if you know what you're doing. (laughs) The state is very tenant friendly and try to evict somebody in like when it's cold out. Like the courts are going to say, ah, we'll wait till the spring, then we'll review it then. Like it is not the best state for that. So, you know, that's also a part of it. But they I go to Rhode Island and they'll they'll kick you to the curb in 30 days, put all your stuff on the curb and they don't care. So I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of considerations that you have to understand when you're investing is what is the worst that could happen? And I don't know, maybe a tornado goes through, the, I mean, you know, I... Now that all this is happening, I hear all these risks that are going on, like the California Cascadian subduction zone and all the terrible things that would happen with that. Like You you can't think about it that way because, you, I mean, the worst case rarely would happen, but you have to at least be comfortable with a bad scenario. And that's how I look at it. Like You can't mitigate all of the risks. There's no way you could do it. There's always going to be risk there. But if you're comfortable with what the risks are, that's really... That's really the comfort level. And I agree with Mindy. I would say if I'm a real estate investor, six months at least, minimum, I think is safe. And then, you know, I, I know people want to stretch their buck and they want to leverage up and buy more real estate, but all of that leveraging or pyramiding, depending on how you want to do it, that only works as long as things keep going up. But as soon as they don't, you're, things go crashing down if you're not protecting yourself.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a moment ago, you said, some of these are illiquid investments. Which ones are or what are, what are ways to know that an investment is going to be illiquid? And then how can you get out of this? Um, I would think that artwork would be fairly illiquid. Um, and when I think artwork, I think like Monet's and, uh, you know, Gauguin. I don't think Bob's painting down the street, but... <laughs>
1: Bob's up and coming, Mindy
0: <laughs> okay well, maybe I should connect with bob i'll I'll listen to you, but if Scott tells me Bob's up and coming, I'm gonna skip that investment. but you know let's say you fall on hard times. How do you get out of an illiquid investment?
1: yeah, and that's that's a good question so let's say um now every one of these is different, but let's take something that the listeners are gonna understand let's talk about non traded reITs, right the traded reITs They're liquid. You can go in the stock market. You can buy and sell them every day. Non-traded REITs are this another kind of REIT, which are very broker-dealer friendly, which is why I don't like them. They're basically illiquid. You might as well just own the real estate yourself. But let's look back in 2008. So a lot of these non-traded REITs have quarterly or monthly liquidity. So if you needed cash out, you just say, hey, I want the cash out. and At the end of the month or 60 days or whatever it is per investment, they give you cash. Now, they always stipulate that if too many people want their cash, you might have to wait an extra month or two because they're not going to liquidate it all at once. 2008 happened. Everybody wanted their cash back. And these properties went from you know $100 a share to $20 a share. And everyone wanted their cash out. So not only did they want their cash out, they're willing to take a discount just to get their cash. They didn't care. They didn't care what it was worth. They just wanted money back. And these um, these firms wouldn't do it because they said, we can't, we're freezing it. We're not giving any redemptions. We don't know what the price is. We're not redeeming anything. So that's obviously a problem. Now, there are secondary markets for a lot of these. So in that case, for non-traded REITs, there was a secondary market I found out way later. I wish I found about it sooner. It was a great opportunity. But they created this marketplace where they would take people who wanted to cash out, they would give them a price, which was not a great price, but it was something. And so, had I known, I would have been in there buying these things hand over fist because I knew of a bunch of them that were really solid. And they probably were a discount, but they weren't 50%. They might have been a 20% discount. But people didn't care. They're willing to sell it for 30 cents in the dollar. I would have just gone in and bought that up like you know, like it was my job. And and that's the kind of thing that that you need to understand. Is there's always secondary markets, but a thing like the stock market has high liquidity because there's millions and millions of buyers and buyers of sellers. And at any given moment, for a you know a big company, you will get a very reasonable price. But if you're selling real estate and there's no buyers, you're going to get a really crappy price. And I think it's it it overlays the same in every single market. There's all of these investments. You have to find a buyer and a seller. It's supply and demand. You look at wine and nobody's buying it, then it's worth nothing, right? It's it's only worth what somebody's willing to pay for. Artwork's the same thing. I guess there was a, a, a podcast, Michael Lewis's podcast, Against the Rules, which they talked about the art market and how it's so artificial and people just throw numbers on it and it's somehow going to make sense to people. It's not really the true value. They just you know, artificially put these prices up there and people pay it. So it, it's kind of a scam in some ways, but it is an actual market. People buy and sell it. So I think it's just understanding that there's probably a secondary market for any of these. I can't see anything on this list where there I don't know of a secondary market. So I, I believe they're always out there. You just need to explore and find them.
0: Well, what I'm hearing you say is that if you are considering investing in these, do it with the long haul in mind. Do it with, you know, don't just try and jump in and out of these these alternative investments um and just make that part of your plan. And, you know, there's not always an easy button for everything. So I think that's I think it's important to note that this is not something that you'll just be able to jump in and out of. So, you know, I'm not gonna buy horses ever. And I know somebody who buys horses all the time. So well, I guess all the time isn't the best way to say that. <laughs> but yeah.
1: Well, it's it's, it's like know, so. it's like i think real estate is a great overlay for all of this conversation even though we're trying to talk about alternatives if you're buying real estate it's illiquid if you have to sell you're going to get a crappy price if you have to buy you're going to get a crappy price if you're patient like in around here in massachusetts and most places in the country it is a seller's market around here stuff doesn't sit on the market for more than a week if it's priced remotely accurately if a week maybe a day i mean it just doesn't sit in the market it is completely a sellers market so if you want to sell it's a great time to sell if you have to buy you might get stuck with a crappy price which you know quite frankly it's one of the reasons why we're being patient you know we want to buy but we're just waiting because i don't want to buy in this market i think i'm just going to get I, I i'm you know i'll end up one of being one of these people who get the worst price i'll i'll top ticket Right before the musical chairs stop, and you know you end up getting stuck with a really expensive property. So I think as long as you have patience and you know you're you're willing to wait, then you'll get good prices. But that's that's the positive and the negatives of an illiquid market. If you're patient, you can do really well in it. And if you're if you're really in a rush, you could really get hosed. Awesome. Well, do do you have anything else
2: that you'd like to add here before we kind of wrap up uh, about this? world of alternative investments?
1: No, I mean, we, we did, I think we did a great job of covering a, a lot of it. Um, you know, I, I think it's a lot of this is just investing in what you know and not getting caught up in the song and dance of somebody else or some newsletter that you read. I mean, I get a ton of people who come to us and say, hey, should we buy gold? I hear the government's going to default on their debt or we're going to have super high inflation. You know, what can I do? It's, it's Bitcoin is what i'm hearing. <laughs> Not making any more of those, well, I guess beyond 20 million or whatever it is.
0: <laughs> Wait, i thought they were still making them.
1: They are. It's, I think 2050 or something is when the last one will be mined or something crazy like that. Oh.
3: But okay. it's
1: yeah, it's it's um they're making more of them but it's it gets less and less each each time they mine them. So it's kind Stock of going to towards the towards the yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I want to give out a shout out to Wald, who listen, who works for us and listens um, to this show. And uh, he'll know what I'm talking about with regards to Bitcoin. Um, okay, Scott, did you have a question? I'm sorry, I jumped right on top of you.
2: No, I think we're, we're running right up around time.
0: Kirk, this has been so helpful. I have learned so much from you today, just with regards to how to think about alternative investments. I do like alternative investments, and, and you know I think this is going to be a lot of fun to start diving into. Um, where can people find this big list of alternative investments that you sent me?
1: Yeah, so I'll give you a link to put on the on the website. You can also go to www.innovativewealth.com slash biggerpockets, and that will be a, a link to the, the big list of alternatives.
0: Awesome. And we will include a link to that in our show notes, which can be found at biggerpockets.com slash moneyshow144. Again, Kirk, thank you so much. This was hugely helpful. And I really think that we're going to start getting a lot of uh, people sending us messages. Where can they send you a message? Where can they find out more about you?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. You can go to innovativewealth.com. You can contact me through that site. Uh, I also host uh, the show Money Tree Investing Podcast. You can find me there. Also through all the social media mediums. Um, uh, really hard to miss. But uh, yeah, just feel free and reach out. I'm happy to, happy to chat.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Kirk. This was great. Thank you so much for your time today. We'll talk to you soon. Scott, that was Kirk Chisholm. What did you think?
1: I,
2: I learned a ton from his approach uh, to investing there. And, and uh uh, I think it was really helpful. I kind of already was interested in exploring some of those things around angel investing, venture capital, private equity, small businesses, those types of things. but i love I love the framework that he provided and, and um, insight into other options there. and and you know I just encourage everyone to go and check out this list in the show notes.
0: Yes, that is going to be great. And the show notes, which can be found at com slash money show 144. I would like to ask a favor of you. If you enjoyed our show, please leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Ratings and reviews help other podcast listeners find our show. Scott, should we get out of here? Let's do it. From episode 144 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, he is Scott Trench, and I am Mindy Jensen saying ciao, ciao, brown cow. Just head to biggerpockets.com/slash deals, enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and boom, instantly matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at BiggerPockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at BiggerPockets.com deals. That's BiggerPockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today.
2: The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only.
0: Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own.